Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. And if you need a Bible, these brothers have some. They're going to make their way to the back. And if you need a Bible, just get their attention. Those are marked at Hebrews chapter 2, and you can keep those Bibles. And I sent a note around to those of you that are on our email list yesterday about the sudden death of Julie Crock's mother. And Julie is the director of the daycare that I mentioned just a bit ago. She's been doing great work in getting everything lined up with that. But then she has, uh, in these last couple of days, gotten that news, late Friday night, actually. And so please be in prayer for, for Julie and for her, her family as they work through the sudden loss of her, her mother. Hebrews 2 today, related to our series in the opening chapters of the Bible in the book of, of Genesis. And as I've said to you throughout this series in Genesis, there will be points at which I will want to connect what's said in that opening book of the Bible to things that are given in further revelation in other books of the Bible, in particular in the New Testament. And today is one such instance. You're going to see a connection between what's said in Hebrews chapter 2 and what we've been looking at in Genesis chapter 1. Those of us who are over 40 grew up watching Walter Cronkite deliver the evening news for CBS. Cronkite would end his newscast the same way every night. He had a trademark sign-off, and he would say, and that's the way it is. Now, he would say this at the end of a broadcast in which he had described wars and riots and assassinations and all manner of calamity, mostly national and international news that affected large numbers of people. That news, the headlines, was then as it is today mostly bad. And I think most of us would agree that that's truly the way it is. Very bad, very dangerous, very ugly. But the statement, and that's the way it is, is really just a statement of fact without any comparison, without any evaluation or judgment. But we all make the evaluation. We all make the judgment that it's just not the way it is But we think to ourselves, every one of us, it's not the way it's supposed to be. Not only is it not the way it's supposed to be at the national, societal level, it's not the way it's supposed to be in our own towns, and on our own streets, in our own homes, and the truth is, in our own hearts. The way it is, is not the way it's supposed to be, neither in the collective world nor in our private world. And that nagging sense that something is askew, something is is just not right, something is definitely wrong, that sense that all of us have that it was supposed to be different is taught very explicitly in the pages of Scripture, God's Word, the Bible. Now you know, and especially you know if you've been with us over the last few weeks, that the Bible story begins with the way it's supposed to be. But then it tells us how quickly it went bad, how quickly it became dangerous and got ugly. And if you read the Bible rightly, you must always have an eye on those opening chapters that tell us the way it's supposed to be and how it went south very quickly. And if you do, as you then read of the wars and the riots and the murders and the assassinations in the Bible, and you do read of all of those, you're constantly saying to yourself, I know what it's supposed to be like, and yet, as I say in the title of today's message, that's not the way it is. And God wants you and me, 
As we do that, as we go through that exercise, as we read God's word and we see what it was supposed to be, and then we experience the world that we're in and we see how it really is, God wants us to long for a restoration. A restoration of our world, a restoration of society and of our homes and of our own hearts. Because you see, friend, we live between two paradises that are mentioned in the Bible. The Bible describes a garden at the front, and it describes a city at the other end. The garden paradise becomes a paradise lost, and the paradise of the heavenly city is paradise restored. And we live in between, where God is calling men and women out of the world and to himself, and he's restoring people one person at a time. The Bible teaches that there will come a time when he will make all things new. And that should be within the heart of every person and particularly within the hearts of those who have come to know him and especially see the difference between the way it is and the way it's supposed to be. We live in between, knowing that what we are now is not what we were made to be and that the world is not as it was intended to be. And many people... Not those of us who have come to Christ, I trust, but but many people do wonder, can it ever be restored? Now, the passage we're going to consider this morning from Hebrews chapter 2, believe it or not, deals with all of that stuff in just four marvelous verses. And I encourage you to take the outline that we provide for you every week out of your program, if you haven't done that already, so that you can follow along. And I want you to see three major points from Hebrews chapter 2. The first is this. That we were made for great things. The way it was supposed to be originally is we were made for great things. Verse number six of Hebrews two. But there is a place where someone has testified. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Now, if you understand that passage rightly, it's really an amazing, absolutely amazing passage with regard to what God has to say about his crowning achievement of his original creation, humanity. Because what we just read is all about human beings and what we were intended to be. Now, when it asks in verse 6, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him? It's speaking of humanity. It's speaking of us. Now, how do I know that it's speaking of humanity when it says, what is man and what is a son of man? Well, verses 6 and 7 of Hebrews 2, in the first line of verse 8, there are quotation from another part of the Bible, Psalm number 8. And as we'll see, that helps us understand what's meant in Hebrews 2. And you know it's a quote because verse 6 begins this way. But there's a place where someone has testified. Now that seems kind of like a weird way to quote the Bible, doesn't it? There's a place where someone has testified. Somebody said somewhere. And so is the writer of Hebrews being flippant with the Bible? Doesn't he know the place where someone said this? The fact is, in the book of Hebrews, the author quotes the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, 38 times. And he always does that accurately. And so he clearly knows the Old Testament very well. 
But in all of the 38 quotations and allusions the author of Hebrews gives, he never cites the human author he's quoting. Whether Moses or Isaiah or David or whomever. In fact, the writer of Hebrews doesn't even give us his own name. And that's why I refer to him as the author of Hebrews or the writer of of Hebrews. Now, why doesn't he identify himself? Why doesn't he identify others? Well, it's because he wants the focus to be on God, not the persons that God used. He wants us to always remember it's God who's ultimately speaking in Scripture, no matter who the human author who penned the words was. And that's why in chapter 1 and verse 1 of Hebrews, it says in the past God has spoken by the prophets, but it is now God the Son whose word it was that the prophets spoke. And who is the person who is superior to angels, it tells us in chapter 1, and to prophets. It's now He who speaks to us. You may remember an event in the life of God the Son, Jesus Christ. When he took three of his closest associates, Peter, James, and John, to a mountain. And there he was transfigured before them. He was transfigured. That means he appeared in his glorified body and brilliant light surrounded him. And the Bible says this. A voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Notice, listen to him. So the author of Hebrews is making sure that we hear the voice of God the Son. Jesus Christ. And so he says there's a place where where someone has said, emphasizing the priority of Jesus over the human writers of Scripture. When this book quotes a passage, it'll simply say there's a place where someone has said. And then verses 6 and 7, in the first line in verse 8, are, as I've said, a quote from the first part of your Bible, Psalm Psalm number 8. Verse 6 again says, What is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him? You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. These verses speak of humanity, of you and me. Now, I confess that for many years, I thought these verses dealt with Jesus. When it says the Son of Man, I thought it was talking about Jesus. And now when we get to verse number 9, we're going to return indeed to speaking of Jesus. But these verses speak of us. And the fact that we were made for great things. When Psalm 8 and verse 6 say son of man, I automatically think of Jesus because he often spoke of himself as the son of man. But just stay with me for a moment when we as we think about what this phrase son of son of God, son of man, son of other things in the Bible means. For example, James and John uh, are referred to as the sons of thunder. In the Bible, that means when when you have son of, it means the individual described as such has the characteristics of a, a person or thing. So they are the sons of thunder or Barnabas was so nicknamed because he was the son of encouragement. Noah is said to be the son of 500 years. And so he had the characteristics of someone who looked really old. So when it says son of man or son of God, it's describing someone who has the characteristics of humanity or someone who has the characteristics of God when we say the son of God. But here it refers to the human beings God created, not Jesus. Now, we know this because, as I said, it's a quote from Psalm 8. And the Psalms are Hebrew poetry, as many of you know. Hebrew poetry employs a device called parallelism. And that is 
the lines of a psalm are paired. And the second line is related to the first. It's related by restating the first line or contrasting the first or comparing or explaining. And in this passage from Psalm 8, the first line speaks of mankind. What is mankind? And so then when the second line speaks of son of man, it too is referring to mankind, humanity in general. So the passage is speaking of us. And it says in verses 7 and 8, you made them, us, a little lower than the angels. You crowned them, us, with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. The passage is speaking of the uniqueness of humanity and our special purpose within God's creation that we saw from the very first chapter of the Bible last week. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 says, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. The first man and the first woman were created to be the king and the queen of creation over all that God had made. They were the crowning achievement of God's creation, made to rule as God's vice regents in his world. And friends, no other creature is given this mandate. God says, in effect, I want you to rule it. I want you to run my world on my behalf. We have this unique purpose. And God has endowed humanity with unique capacities to fulfill that purpose. The image of God in man means that man alone can say these four things. I am. I can. I ought. I will. I am. I can. I ought. I will. Only humanity can say that. Now let me break those down briefly. I am. That is, mankind alone, made in the image of God, has an awareness of self, a self-awareness. Thinking about who we are and where we fit into the larger picture. We have a self-awareness and we have a God-awareness. We were made by this God to know this God from the very first moment of creation. So we can say, I am. We have self-awareness and God-awareness. We can say, I can. God has given us unique abilities to do the things he has, has assigned to us, filling the earth and subduing it and pursuing our creative abilities as those made in his image. I am and I can. And then again, humanity alone can say I ought because we are given by God a moral sense. God has placed a conscience in every one of his image bearers. And then we as well can say, can consider within ourselves, I will, I make choices. We have the capacity of volition. I will carry out these particular plans for which I was created. Now, I know that if you have a pet, your pet is the smartest pet that ever lived. And I know you think that your dog can do anything that humans can do. But Fido can't do any of that. Fido can't say to himself, he never sits back and ponders, you know, who am I? How do I fit in the larger picture here? He simply acts on instinct. Only God's image bearers can say, I am, I can, I ought, I will. The Bible teaches that humanity was made for significance. 
In his book, A Quest for More, the author Paul Tripp has a number of illustrations and insights on this theme. It's a classic in Western culture, he says. She stands before the microphone, beautiful and poised, a finalist in the Miss America contest. The host asks her what she would like to accomplish during her reign, and she says, I would like to create world peace, solve world hunger, and liberate all the caged parakeets in the entire world. (laughs) Now, for all of the poking fun and the sarcastic comments, the truth is she's on to something. Because there is woven inside each of us a desire for something more, a craving to be a part of something bigger, something greater, something more profound than a relatively meaningless day-to-day existence. We simply weren't constructed to live only for ourselves, friends. We were placed on earth to be part of something bigger than the narrow borders of our own survival and our own little definition of happiness. And that desire resides in each of us. It's called a fancy term, transcendence. To transcend is to be part of something bigger. So being a fan in the stands with 65,000 other fans at the Super Bowl, with everybody screaming at the top of their lungs as the kicker launches the last second field goal, it gives us a, a feeling of transcendence. And you can hear it in the voice of the fan who says, it's our year. Our time has come. We're going to win it all. He sounds like he's a, a paid member of the team. And in fact, he's not. The we language is transcendent. He's become part of something greater than his mundane workaday world. This desire to connect to something bigger will make otherwise dignified people um, less than dignified in the way they express that. Uh, I have two friends that are professors at Detroit Baptist Seminary. Many of you know Dr. Mark Snowberger and Dr. Robert McCabe. Very dignified men. I sat under them, and I appreciate their ministry greatly. What you may not know about them is they both hail from the state of Pennsylvania. And they are rabid Pittsburgh Steelers fans. And they root for the Steelers in ways that make dignified people, as I say, less than dignified. And there's a picture floating around someplace. I'm going to get it and put it on the screen someday. Of the two of them together with Steelers jerseys on. One of them has Ben Roethlisberger's, their quarterback's jersey on. The other has the jersey of Troy Palamo. What is his name? Thank you, Palamalo. And if you know this at all, Palamalo's the guy, when his helmet's on, there's a bunch of hair sticking out at the bottom. He's got this crazy do. And either Snowberger or McCabe, I don't remember which it is, has a Palamalo wig on <laughs> as well. Or you have the local volunteer in a presidential campaign. He'll probably never meet the candidate. And yes, he's only running folding machines and stuffing boxes full of literature, but he's part of something transcendent. He's been told that this campaign could forever change the face of American politics. If only for a moment, being involved in this effort, he has transcended. This desire for transcendence is in all of us because God has placed it there. But we don't think in terms of great things, hear this, friends, because sin minimizes. We were made for big things. We were made for significant things. But we don't think that way because sin has the tendency to minimize. It causes us to reduce the size of our purpose to the shape of our lives. 
My purpose can only be seen in the narrow confines of what's going on now. We have a small view, a tiny view, a narrow view of what we are to be about. All people still have this lingering image of God. As we mentioned last week, it was marred because of sin, but not completely obliterated. People know that they were made for something more, for something great, but unfortunately, we settle for things that are too small. In the words of Paul Tripp, we were never meant to be self-focused little kings and queens ruling our tiny little kingdoms with a population of one. Sure, it's right for you to care about your health, your job, your house, your investments, your family, and your friends. Of course, it would be irresponsible to act as if none of these things mattered. Yet it is a functional human tragedy to live only for those things. It's a fundamental denial of your humanity to narrow the size of your life to the size of your own existence because you were created to be above and beyond. You were made to be transcendent. And the fact is we don't live that way. And the fact that we don't live that way is a tragedy of immense proportions, and that tragedy is expressed in our passage. We were made for great things, but I say secondly in your outline, we have settled for small things. Made for great things, but we settle for small things. The end of verse 8 says this, Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. Now, when it says him, it's referencing what precedes. And what precedes, it's a statement about humanity, about mankind. So yet at present, we do not see everything subject to humanity, to mankind. Now, this is one of the great understatements in the entire Bible. Man was made for great things, but to put it mildly, we don't see that happening as yet. Yet at present, man is not fulfilling the purpose for which God made him. This is not saying that originally, as we saw back in Genesis 1, that man was put in charge, but now after sin and man's separation from God, he's no longer responsible to act on God's behalf. It's not saying that. No, what that line means when it says we do not see everything subject to him is that humanity has failed to subdue and to rule the earth. Failed to rule and represent God as he was made to do. It's saying that things are now... The way they are, because we do not see humanity ruling as God's vice regent on God's behalf. In one sentence, the writer of Hebrews encompasses sin and all of its effects. Yet at present, we do not see all things subject to him. As a result of rejecting God in sin, humanity has abdicated the responsibility that God gave us in the dominion mandate of Genesis chapter 1. This abdication shows up in the way we run things. It shows up in the way we run our countries, our states, our cities, our own lives. We run them without reference to God and without reference to His purposes. It's displayed in the way we work, whether we work unto, as unto the Lord or as unto ourselves. Rather than living for the great cause for which God created us, we live for the small things that so easily allure us. The book, A Quest for More, has the following illustration. Jim sat before me, his slumped body a testament to the depression that gripped him. 
He said he had awakened a few months earlier and realized that there was no one who cared if he woke up that morning. No one cared if he was healthy or sick. No one cared if he was happy or sad. He said, I get up in the morning and I put on great looking clothes. I leave my beautiful modern condominium. I get in my luxury car and drive to my high paying job only to go back to my beautiful condominium at the end of the day to start it all over again. I could die today and no one would even notice. I have it all. Why can't I be happy? Well, Jim did have it all. Yet in getting it all, he had denied his own humanity. In his quest for everything, Jim had missed the one thing that separated him from everything else that God made. Jim had constructed his own kingdom, indulged his every dream, met his every need. He had ruled his kingdom with discipline and success, but he discovered it was an empty kingdom and he was an empty king. It was not that Jim attempted too much. The tragedy was that he settled for way too little, and that's exactly what he got. We look at people and we say he or she has got it, and we define it the way Jim did. And God says, I made you for much greater things than that. We settle, friends, for much, much too little. Here's what sin does. It moves and it shifts our focus to what one author calls nowism. Nowism. Instead of remembering what we were made to be and looking forward to a full restoration in the future, we get immersed in the now. We get immersed in the present. But understanding what we were made to be and looking forward to what we will be should cause us to live radically different lives in the here and now. The truth is, as God's people being restored to our original calling, we are people who march to the beat of a different drummer. We live according to different values. We do not heed the siren call of the culture that seeks to capture our attention. We are, in the words of Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 10, a people who are looking forward to a city whose builder and maker is God. But if completely fulfilling our purpose in the future is not our focus, then, friends, we settle for small things and you see it in the now-ism. There are many consequences to now-ism. Forgetting what you were made to be, forgetting what you will be, and then pursuing your tiny purpose, redefined purpose in the here and now. Many consequences. Let me just give a few. One way to think about at least an aspect of our battles with depression. Now, before I go on, please understand, I'm not diagnosing clinical depression here. I'm not telling you if you're clinically depressed, don't take your medication. I'm not telling you that. Take your medication. But one way to think about the the many, many people and the hundreds-fold percent increase in the number of people in our day who would define themselves or be defined as depressed. One way to think of that is being only focused on what's going on now. An intense focus on now. One way to think about anger. I should have better, we think to ourselves. I don't have as much as I deserve. I'm angry with you for not providing it. 
I'm angry with my parents for not giving me more. I'm ultimately angry with God for not supplying what I deserve to have. Underlying the anger is a form of nowism. I don't have now what I believe I deserve in the form that I believe I deserve it. Fear and anxiety are really just obsessions with the here and now. It is almost unbelievable how much unbelief exists amongst believers. It's almost unbelievable how much unbelief exists amongst professing believers. Earlier in our service, we were singing about God's ability to do anything. And yet in your circumstances right now, this week, in the last few days, many of you have denied that by your attitudes, your thoughts, and your words, and your actions. You don't believe God can do anything. You don't believe God can restore that relationship. You don't believe God can move on the heart of that other person. Friends, do we or do we not believe that God can do anything? Or are we people who are living in nowism? And defining our lives in terms of what is happening right now. Years ago, my wife and I counseled a lady. No one here, no one, she's not in our church. But we counseled uh, a lady. And she had some horrible things happen to her in her past. And she was regularly asking, I don't see why God allowed this thing to happen to me. But you see, she's living in the the nowism. She doesn't see in the immediate here and now the reason necessarily. But even in her case, there was an apparent reason. I pointed out to this woman. She had a son who had a number of health problems. And she was one of the most tender mothers to that son that I've ever seen. She was a marvelous mother. She had had all these things happen. And she knew what it was to be vulnerable. Like few people do. And God had called this person who knew vulnerability to act upon that in the life of her son. I showed her that God has a purpose in everything he does. It is true that often we don't know that purpose in the here and now. But friends, we cannot fall victim to now-ism. The author of Hebrews reminds us that we were made for great things, but we settle for small things. We do not see man ruling for God, and so mankind pursues his own kingdom. But thanks be to God, we've been given a solution. In verse 9, in contrast to the end of verse 8 and what we do not see, verse 9 turns our attention away from ourselves and to something else. No, not actually to something else, to someone else. The end of verse 8 says, At present we do not see everything subject to him, to humanity. Verse 9, but we do see Jesus. Humanity was made for glory and honor. Humanity is not fulfilling that purpose in big ways and in the confines of our own individual lives. We don't see man doing that now, but here's what the author tells us. We do see Jesus in verse 9. And so in your outline, I say we were made for great things. We settle for small things. But thirdly, Jesus can restore us to great things. Jesus can restore us to great things. So here's what we don't see. We don't see mankind living as he was intended. 
But here's who we do see. We see Jesus. And Jesus is like us and yet different from us. That Jesus is like us is seen in that verse 9. Uses the same phrases of Jesus that were used of humanity in general back in verse 7. Verse 9 says, we see Jesus who was made lower than the angels. And is, notice this, now crowned with glory and honor that we were made to have. Jesus has achieved what we missed. Jesus has succeeded where we failed. Now, how has he done that? Verse 9 says, he's crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. Crowned because he suffered. How does his suffering become the cause, the reason for him being crowned with the very glory and honor that we were made for? Well, it's this, friends. It's because Jesus obeyed where Adam, the first Adam, disobeyed. When the first Adam, the one that we, the first man that we saw last week, Adam, Serving as our representative, disobeyed God and brought sin on the world. He, in effect, abdicated the crown that God had given him. Now, the Bible refers to the first Adam and it refers to the last Adam. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 45, the first Adam and the last Adam. The last Adam is Jesus. And the reason they are both called this is because both of them were our representatives. Adam represented us in his disobedience, Jesus in his obedience. And that's why Romans chapter 5 says this, Just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Now we know where and how it was that the first Adam disobeyed, but how did the last Adam, Jesus, obey? Jesus' obedience is seen in that, unlike Adam, He fulfilled the purpose for which God the Father had sent him. And that was to die for the sins of his people. His whole life of obedience when on earth culminated in the ultimate obedience in his willingness to die a death that he did not deserve. And that's why in that famous passage in Philippians chapter 2, the Bible says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, Being made in human likeness, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. His whole life of obedience culminated then in his obedience to death on a cross for us. And it's because of that, the next verse says this, therefore, because of that, Because he obeyed where the first Adam disobeyed, therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus has now been crowned with the glory and honor for which we were made. And it's only in being related to Jesus that we can be restored to what we were designed for. When we come to him, believing that he has done what is required for us, paid for our sins, and giving our lives to him, he changes us so that we now begin to live for the larger purpose rather than the narrow confines of our circumstances. 
And in the here and now, then, that makes a difference in our lives. First Peter chapter 2 says this. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Friends, in being related to the last Adam, to Jesus, we're assured of being restored to our original status as kings and queens who serve our God in the future city. Here's what the last chapter of your Bible says. The city will have the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. No longer was there any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city. And now notice, His servants will serve Him and they will reign with Him forever and ever. God is restoring what has been broken by sin. And that restoration is a restoration of humanity to His original intention to rule and to reign for God. So there is where we were, where we are, and where we're going. You could think of it this way. When we come to Christ, we are restored. We can now think of ourselves as a royal priesthood. We are restored, but you could also think of it this way. We are being restored. Christ has begun His restoration project in us gradually in the here and now, moving us from our narrow, self-centered kingdom to living for Him as the King and for His kingdom. We are restored. We're being restored. And thirdly, you could think of it as we will be restored. We will be restored fully to the position for which we were made. But that only happens to those who are related to Jesus. Now, we're going to conclude with me reminding you how you get related to Jesus. But most of you in this room would consider yourselves already related to Jesus. But the benefits of being related to Jesus do you absolutely no good if they're not applied in, not applied in the wisdom that God provides. If we insist on living our lives as those who profess Jesus and say that we know Jesus, but we do not live for Jesus' purpose and His mission and His great cause and for eternal purposes, then, friends, we are just living like unsaved people. Hear this, like unsaved people who go to church. How many professing Christian people live like unregenerate people who just go to church? How do I get related to Jesus? You need to realize that you are a sinner. That sin shows up in the ways we've talked about in a myriad other ways. Recognize that in Jesus' obedience, he died for your sins. Repent. Lord, I'm going to go your way. I'm going to follow your way, not my way. Receive Jesus Christ then and his offer of salvation. In a moment, we're going to pray. There should be two kinds of prayers going on. There should be prayers going on in this room from people who are not related to Jesus saying, Lord, I need the salvation and the restoration that only you can give. I'm a sinner. You're the savior. I ask you to rescue me and I'm going to give you my life. You say that from your heart in your own words to God. 
That's one prayer. The other prayer should be from those who are related to Jesus, but who've gotten caught up in the allure of the world and the nowism and the here and now. Failure to believe God. Failure to believe that there's something beyond what's happening now. Confess that to God. And ask the Lord God, the gracious Lord God, to restore to you an understanding of what it was we were made for. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for reminding us and convicting, at least me, of our unbelief. Oh Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Thank you, Lord, for reminding us as to what we were made to be. We were made to rule for you and to represent you in this world. We were made for good things. We were made for invigorating things. We were made for marvelous things. But sin causes us to restrict our vision of what we are to be and what we can be. And so many of us have come into this room in the narrow ruts that we have created because we no longer have the vision of what we were made to be and what we were called, are called to do. Oh Lord, restore our vision. Restore our hope. Restore our joy in the journey we ask you. I pray that many hearts are turning to you in the sacred moment and asking you to restore those things as we await your restoration of all things. Lord Jesus, the last Adam, the obedient one, to whom we must be fully related if we are to fulfill our purpose. I pray that your Holy Spirit is moving on the hearts of some to draw them to yourself. Cause them to see that they're living for themselves and yet they were made for you. As a result, Lord God, help many from this room. Oh Lord, may it be that all of us in this room would go forth this week determined to bring glory to the one who made us and who has called us to glory and honor. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.